Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Control Report Podcast, episode 262. I'm Benjamin Yoder, here today, talking about video games. I got great news. I was not expecting this, but this week, I, or last week at this point for you guys, um, I finished Buddy Mission Bond. That was not in the in the pages initially when I la- recorded last week's podcast. My thought was last week was, you know, I, I played... Um, that that part where I got to the end of that that one section, and then I was gonna try to you know spread about you know maybe like five to ten hour sessions between various days, um, but on Sunday Sunday specifically, I was like, okay, I'm gonna take Sunday to just really focus on Buddy Mission Bond, you know, do another ten hour thing where I get to the next arc. But as I was playing that ten hours, I was like, oh no, this game feels like it's getting like towards the end. Um, which I kind of caught me off guard because I, I mentioned last week that in, in, in the Mokuma story, um, you know, I hadn't really felt that like he had his story kind of wrapped up, but I hadn't really felt that was the case for the other characters. Well, well, there's a reason for that in that the other character stories are a lot more intertwined than Mokuma's and Mokuma's does have a relationship, but essentially the three other characters kind of come to a, a, a peak all together at once, which I was, which I was like, oh, okay. So I got like, to probably around 10 hours into my session, you know, when I would start to wrap up. And I was looking, I was like, they're talking about like this as like the final push. And, and, and you know, I should have known better because I, has, I was already aware that it would be around like 70 hours to 100% the game. That was my expectation going into it. Um, and I was only around 40 hours at this point. And I was like, I can, I see the pathway to beat this game. Um, that pathway was not super clear though. And so it did not end up working out. I kept trying to push. I kept pushing. I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And so it was like, it was like three 30 in the morning on Sunday or Monday morning. Right. And I was just like, I have to stop. I can't go anymore. I got to stop. So I stopped. Um, thankfully, as I mentioned last week, I am like semi unemployed right now. I'm like working part time and like the hours I work, nobody's really like, tracking them per se like I can kind of clock in and work whenever um and and so like on 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 Monday I was like okay I was I saw I was destined like I was like I'm so close to the game this will be fairly short um that was not the case Monday either I kept going and I saw that so there's two endings to the game there's the initial ending and there's like a true ending kind of thing. So I saw the initial ending, but it seemed pretty clear the true ending was something that you wanted to go out of your way to get. They, they heavily imply it's something you should look at. So I got to the true ending and then by the time all was said and done, you know, again, it was probably close to like two in the morning again so after I played it like 10 hours. So yeah, I ended up getting around like, you know, 50, 60 hours at that point. Um, and I, I was just like, all right, well, I, I'm, I'm here. So the next day I went and was like, well, I finished it that night very late. Um, and the next day I basically went and just decided to try to hundred percent it. And I was like, it'll only take me probably about like another two to three hours to up hundred percent. It maybe closer to five, depending on how it goes, but it was another 10 hours to hundred percent. So 
the last week was just a intense buddy mission bond grind. Um, I loved every moment of it. Uh, well, let me take that back. I loved every moment of it leading up to the actual ending and any of the stuff that I had unlocked. Because as I was mentioning, I was kind of going for about for a hundred percent run from the beginning. So by the time I reached the end, there was a lot of extra stuff unlocked. Which I was watching that stuff throughout the game too. But when you finish the last mission with like S ranks, um, you get like different episodes as well and i feel like they're a bit more substantial than a lot of the earlier ones um but anyways so um so i i i was basically like okay i need to like 100 percent grind out this last like um um section and grinding out the last section is not super fun uh basically they ask you to go back and revisit investigation points and stuff like that as well as infiltrations the investigations are pretty straightforward um the only difference they really ask is like sometimes they'll ask you to pair certain characters in certain events even though you can complete that event without that pair um and that will unlock additional events so that was kind of the one that that i wasn't really paying attention to a ton throughout the game so i had to kind of go back and make up for that lost ground but thankfully um pretty much every single one of those i had to go back and do the infiltration mission anyway so i would have to go and do the investigation either way so it just was like okay well here's just another thing i do along the path the big problem was the investigations because those um are essentially these events, 3D world events that you basically go around and like explore and and solve puzzles and things like that. And the game doesn't let you really advance those at your own pace. Um, each room in that 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 section is basically its own like little puzzle or event that you have to solve. And the game is still very structured around like the story element of it so you can't just like you know blast through a uh, uh, investigation and just like solve puzzles without you know actually going and solving them they're like okay you have to go look at each one of these panels and even though the panels are the same information as every time and it's the same passcode every time you still have to go look at every single panel before you can go put the code and things like that and then a lot of characters will be like oh here's like a quick time event but before we do that we're going to stop you and have a conversation it's it's kind of like like a weird pacing thing in general at the main game but i think it's not super noticeable because character dialogue is a big big part of buddy mission bond and then it's only really noticeable when you're like trying to really get through something fairly quickly now the nice thing is is that when you're doing those investigation sequences um to get the additional episodes and things like that uh they want you to pair certain characters that you haven't already paired essentially so you do get new dialogue and new little events that happen so it's not like you know a complete um you know waste of time and, and and if you just match the dialogue it probably would go quite a bit faster but i sat there and read the dialogue for each of these characters things like that um and so it just took me a little while longer and it's not bad it just it, it just takes a little time to to sit down and do so that's maybe like the one real thing about the game that i'm just like this is not super great but you know it's not terrible either so anyways i really adored it i really loved it um I'm going to hold off on giving my complete final thoughts. You know, I've talked a lot about Buddy Mission Bond on this podcast already, um, you know, through the various episodes. And um, I did actually sit down and write a Buddy Mission Bond script. Um, not complete. It, it is in the shape of a script, I will say. So I've, I've put down the groundwork and I've laid out the pieces. And there are some pieces that I need to move around a bit more. And also there are certain things that are missing from the script that I need to kind of put together but I think I have the skeleton of what I want to do. Um, and that's what was important, I think. And, and I think was was one of the things I was worried about is if that skeleton would not come together very well. Um, and I think what I did to help myself with Buddy Mission Bond specifically is, you know, I have a hard time talking about story and characters in, um, 
in reviews. And basically, I let myself fail more up front um, with it. So I was like, I'm going to write this even though I know the way I'm wording this is not great um, and the way I'm describing this. And so I basically, you know, took the approach of I would rather put more on the paper right now with this particular thing than I would less because I, I don't know... You always run into that problem where, or at least for me, I run into that problem where like, how special is a game like Buddy Mission Bond and how it handles these character interactions, things like that. And I do think there is a, if not, not unique per se, but there is a special attention to detail in a lot of Buddy Mission Bond's aspects and conveying that to the player and explaining why that's important is a big challenge. And sometimes I feel like I'm pointing out very obvious things, um, but... I feel like in this case, I am really going to probably put a lot more words in there to try to better express my feelings than try to pull it back so much so that I don't necessarily like um, uh, describe it enough to to get my point across. So I think that is um, that is my thought on that. So anyways, when does that Buddy Mission Bond video come out? That's way out there at this point. Like, I have no idea. It might come together quickly. It might take a while. We'll see. But my goal right now is to reduce script production time. Um, and Buddy Mission Bond did, was a challenge today, and it did take me longer. But I kind of expected it to take me longer, to be honest. I spent a good, like, four-ish hours on it today. Um, so, but I think that's probably, realistically, might be kind of, around the time I want to spend to get an initial draft. So we'll see. I had the Kudan Squash video that came out last week, actually. And that's kind of an example of me kind of putting a script together pretty quickly and kind of, you know, tucking it in in different ways without necessarily like revamping everything and just being like, this is worded weird, but let me kind of like find ways to not have to rewrite everything and just like, you know, convey certain information, even if it's like I'm duplicating some information, but just a way to keep the structure in place so I don't have to like sit there and tear the entire building apart and rebuild it every single time. Like one little bit of information doesn't fit in a way that I want it to and, and doesn't flow in the way I want it to as well. So that's kind of the goal with that. So anyways, I hope you guys are looking forward to a Buddy Mission Bond video. That's a game I'm very passionate about and... <laughs> I did so one thing I did do and I think I think I feel comfortable doing this now that I now that I've beaten Buddy Mission Bond is I did go ahead and buy the Blu-ray disc for Buddy Mission Bond. If you don't know what that is, it's not like an anime or something like that. It's a stage show that the voice actors did. Um, but in that Blu-ray disc, they actually have a bundle of like an additional soundtrack. Um, and I always want to check that soundtrack out. And I would like to see what the, like the stage play looks like. Obviously, I'm not going to get a lot out of it. It's all in Japanese. There's no subtitles, I'm sure. If there's any subtitles, it'll be Korean or, 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 or uh, Ch Chinese, one of those two, because the game wasn't localized that way. But I'm assuming it's just Japanese. Um, and it's a really expensive Blu-ray, I will say. And it was still expensive in the end. However, because the US dollar is strong right now, um, it was quite a bit cheaper than, than it would have been, which is like, I think the, the MSRP is like $130 typically. And it was on sale. So it was on sale and it was like a hundred and well, it was like, uh, I forget what it's like 110,000 yen or whatever it is, but like what would normally have been closer to equivalent to like $110. Um, and then you'd have to add the shipping on top of that. Um, and that would be another like 20 bucks, basically 20, 30 bucks. 
Um, but then, but with how the, the dollar is and the sale that Amazon was running, I got it down to like $95 with shipping and everything. So it's pricey. It was, it's still very pricey. Um, and because I like have kind of like a, a weird situation with my employment, that probably was not the best decision. I mean, I'm fine financially, so it's not really a problem. It's just a part of me is like, I probably should have been. I don't know. Part of me is like guilting myself if I spend money while I'm like don't have like a consistent income. I do have an income still, but it's just not like, you know, a a, a, a living wage at the moment. So, yeah, it was a whole thing. But anyways, I'm very excited to see that. Uh, I think it arrives. I think by the time next podcast, you should I should have it or at least like early the week after that kind of thing. So I ordered it directly from Amazon. So I didn't have to go through any proxy service or anything like that, which was nice. Um, so that was cool. There are the drama CDs still. Those are still like anywhere between like, you know, 40 to 50,000 yen kind of thing. So, um, you know, I haven't checked to see how much it would be, you know, with the U.S. dollar being strong at the moment. Um, but I might I think if I do go for those, I'll probably look at um, third third party sellers first or used sellers. But the, the thing is, is that, you know, drama CDs, I think I get a lot less out of because it is all audio. Right. So it's not like I can really like interpret things from what's happening you know, visually. And so I guess one saving grace with the, the Blu-ray, um, uh, like stage show they did is that, you know, I will have something visual to look at, but I'm going to guess a lot of it's going to be just dudes standing on stage with like scripts in their hands. Maybe I I feel like I, whenever I've seen those like stage Japanese stage shows, they often have like scripts in their hands while they're on there. But you know, dudes on stage, you know, probably not doing a lot. I could be wrong. Maybe it's like some, glorified well acted thing but i i get the feeling it's probably just basically people doing line reads on stage and doing some you know fairly minimal movements and things like that so i actually so i don't know the total numbers of units that buddy mission bond sold but i actually did look at the media create numbers for buddy mission bond and i saw that it actually dropped off the top 20 list of media create um after week two apparently so this would have been like you know late february probably or like mid-february actually probably when the game dropped off the sales chart, but um, the last sales like listing it had, it had only sold like 10,000 copies physically, which is not Japanese sales numbers are weird. So I don't want to say it's not great, um, but it does seem very low. Um, that doesn't, you know, how much has it sold under that 20, you know, top 20 listing? How much has it sold digitally? It could be very different things, but um, yeah, if, if it's 10,000 ish units, you know, for the lifetime of that game, Let's say let's be generous and say maybe twenty to thirty thousand. You know that definitely is kind of a somewhat flop, probably. But again, I don't want to. That, don't take that as me saying like a hundred percent body mission bond flopped. I don't know. The nice thing though is that it is a very character focused game, so you know they can create these other you know specific pieces of merchandise that are around these characters to um to kind of drive uh uh. uh revenue and stuff like that from it so um there's some buddy mission uh i think they're called like rock glasses or something they're used for like whiskey and man those looked great they were like um i think they were uh maybe 30 dollars per per glass i think um but you can buy the set online from third-party sellers they don't sell the glasses themselves anymore for like 170 kind of thing again with like the dollar being strong maybe it's close to like 150 but proxy service shipping glasses is uh yeah you're gonna be you're gonna be paying a lot of money for that so 
Definitely not cheap, but you know, it would have been nice. Those, those glasses are very nice. And maybe someday it makes sense, but not today, unfortunately. So, so yeah. Anyways, let's wrap up our buddy mission bond minute here. So that's probably the last you're going to hear about it on this podcast for a while, at least outside of the context of the video. Uh, maybe I'll talk about the Blu-ray action when that comes on. Um, but you know, I have a hundred percent of that game, so I've done everything I can. So, um, I really hope I can get that video out within like a short enough time frame that, that it's, you know, you guys can, can look at it. Um, we are kind of like in Nintendo Direct E3 season right now. Um, just as a heads off, I'm recording this on a Saturday. So this is before Sunday, which is when Xbox's thing is happening. Um, but uh, the there's a possibility there's going to be Nintendo Direct this week. And there's a possibility Buddy, Buddy Mission Bomb will be a part of that. So um, that would be amazing if that was the case. I would probably still do a review based off the Japanese version with that. Um, and just kind of like, like talk about it in anticipation of of the u.s release but again with with how it seemingly did not sell great in japan i i kind of wonder i kind of wonder how it will go so we'll see i played another game this week i think i mentioned this earlier at the start of the podcast i played a game called hello kitty magical museum and this game is uh kind of like a kid's puzzle maze game kind of thing um, I actually recently imported it from uh, Vink with Japan Retro Direct, and I actually did like an unboxing video that unfortunately is not going to get published for a while. I think it like, because I, I lined up a bunch of content ahead of time, and I think that video ended up being like mid-July or something like that. So it's a ways out. But anyway, so um, in that video, I showed off. It, I just got the cartridge. I didn't get like the box or anything. So really, I just kind of showed it on screen like, yeah, I got this. And that's kind of it. Um, but anyway, so I did sit down and play through it, um, cause I kind of expected it, it would be really short and short enough it was, you know, being a kid's puzzle game is like 45 minutes long. Um, and basically how it works is that it's, it's set up in like a maze fashion where you have, you know, these little like paths, uh, Hello Kitty will walk through and Hello Kitty themselves, um, will walk automatically. So what you do as the player is you essentially have these gates that you can kind of swing back and forth. And those gates also have arrows on them. So, so the gates themselves will block Hello Kitty. So if you put it like, you know, you swing the gate closed and it's just like a dead end, Hello Kitty will turn around. If you swing the gate closed and it like creates like a right angle, Hello Kitty will like follow that right angle and keep going. But if you put the um, arrow on the sign, you can flip it back and forth. Um, and so if you put the arrow on the sign in the opposite direction, you can still like say at the right angle, still turn Hello Kitty back and things like that. So basically it's a way you can kind of control Hello Kitty at these key points in the map. Um, and so Hello Kitty walks around and leaves these like trails of, I guess, revealing images behind her, or, like revealing an image. So each board is like a full image kind of thing. So as you walk around, Hello Kitty like reveals this trail. And I initially thought you were going to have to like complete the entire board with that. But no, actually, apparently, as far as I can tell, that does not matter at all. The only thing that matters is Hello Kitty gets to the goal. So if you don't even paint like more than like a third of the map still doesn't matter get to the goal, you'll get the entire thing cleared off, basically. Um, so it's pretty straightforward, and there's not a lot of depth to it. Um, and and, and, and what, well, let me say this. One, one kind of nice thing about it is that it is very flexible with its solutions. You know, Maybe being a kid's game, this is where that comes into play. But it's a game that lets you um, focus more on timing to get Hello Kitty around, more so than like you have to very specifically use this set of inputs at this set of times kind of thing. So while there's definitely some puzzling of like how to get Hello Kitty around, there's also like a certain amount of luck and a certain amount of reaction time that's kind of nice. Um, but otherwise, it's more or less just figuring out, you know, what Hello Kitty's path the, that Hell Kitty's path needs to take, essentially. Um, there are these, like, uh, boulders that roll around, though, so you do have to try to dodge those. Usually there's just, like, one or two on the map. I think some of the harder stages, there's, like, three or whatever. 
Um, but um, yeah, the game never really gets like super hard. You can change the difficulty, but as far as I can tell, it just changes how quickly uh, Hello Kitty moves um, and then the boulders moves as well. So it doesn't really like affect the, the like, difficulty that much. It just kind of reduces your, your like ability to time things out properly kind of thing. Or, or it just reduces your ability to 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 read ahead more, as far as I can tell. Um, I did not spend a lot of time in hard mode, I will say, or easy mode. So maybe I'm wrong. I just played it on the normal difficulty for the most part. So, um, so yeah, and so it's like 45 minutes, and the level like difficulty is actually kind of fairly consistent. There's like three worlds, and each of those have 15 puzzles in them. Um, some of the 15, like I, like the very final stage, I did. Uh, which was the third world, the 15th puzzle on that, literally was just like one input and I was done. It was just like, hey, Hello Kitty is walking forward, make one change, she goes into the goal, it's over. <laughs> so I don't really know how they're trying to intend for you to like balance that difficulty level. Um, you know, you could essentially choose any of the three sets of puzzles at any time and then you'd go into the 15 puzzles and climb from there kind of thing. But, you know, pretty straightforward, pretty easy. So so one thing that is kind of cool about this game though, unfortunately it's not something I can try out myself, is that it does have, as far as I can tell, Game Boy printer support. So you could take the images you got from those puzzles. So in total, that's like 45 images plus... I think there's like a couple bonus images as well, like based off if you beat the game or something. Um, but you can take those like 45 images and you can p print those to a Game Boy printer. Um, now, the, the the game is a Game Boy Color game, but I believe Game Boy printers are only black and white. I could be wrong about that. I believe that's the case, though. I have not used a Game Boy printer basically since I was like eight or something like that right i don't even think it was mine i think it was my uncle's honestly um and so i don't know if they ever came out with a game boy color printer i don't think they did i did try to look around a little bit but i didn't really find anything so so it looks like you can basically print out these little hello kitty stamps and things like that which are really cute and fun um so i like that and there's actually a fan translation online as well but you know how much you need a fan translation for a game like hello kitty puzzle event or magical museum is like questionable it'll help you around some like menu items and like maybe the credits or something like that and like if you want to read the printer dialogue or something like that but so like saying do you want to print yes no like so it's barely anything um but it is out there if you want to do that 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 uh translation so but uh, i had a lot of fun with it very cute kind of fun music it's an imagineer game as well so if you're familiar with imagineer you know, it's kind of neat to see that uh, they worked on like the fitness boxing games and things like that in more recent years. So, um, yeah, pretty neat, pretty cool. So that was a fun thing. Maybe if you see it for like a dollar or two, just play it on emulator. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, don't go out of your way to buy a ton unless you're just like a really big Hello Kitty fanatic. And at that point, hey, why not buy the box copy or something like that, right? print out all 45 Hello Kitty things. I don't know how the Game Boy printer situation is. I assume there's a way to like take Game Boy printer pictures and like export those out to a computer somehow. So you don't have to worry about printer paper and things like that. Um, I did not look into it and I probably won't ever look into it. Um, just kind of a weirdly specific thing. Maybe like if it's like, um, I think it connects via like that little port on the side of the system is how the Game Boy printer works. So maybe there's like a USB version of that you can buy somebody's made and plug that directly into a PC and run some kind of app. That's what I, how I assume it would work probably, but who can say? I don't know. Anyways, but yeah, that's kind of all I've played. Um, so let's get to the Patreon. Again, once again, thank you guys who subscribe to the Patreon. Paul Daniel, Jillian, Discreet, Zero. Appreciate all of you guys 
for submitting. If you don't know, when you're a part of the Patreon plan, you basically submit at three diff or two different levels. One is the $3 level. It's like a general support level. Um, but you do get to add up, ask a podcast question, which we'll do here in a little bit. Um, and then the second level is a $5 level where you get bonus content and bonus videos and things like that. So I've been recording bonus videos, putting something out every two weeks, essentially, is what I've been doing. So the last one I did was the uh, Wario's Woods review commentary. This week, I have a video that goes over the Dojin goods that I purchased when I was in Japan in 2019. Um, I actually didn't get all of them in there, I realized. I found that I had set some aside, um, so I didn't get the entire set, but you get like 95% of it. So if you want to see me go through some of the Dojin stuff I picked up when I was in Japan in 2019, there you go. There's a video where I do that. So again, appreciate you guys who contribute to Patreon. Hope you're getting enjoying your bonus content for that. However, we do have a Patreon question this week from Jillian, um, and that Patreon question uh, is, what were your ventures before one controller port? Um, I don't know, like, how much people know, yeah, about, like, you know, what was before one controller port, because um, there's there's kind of a few different things. Um, first and foremost, um, when I got out of, like, high school, um, I was just kind of looking for something to do for the most part. And, uh, one of the things I did in, in high school that I really enjoyed was, um, writing tech news articles for a class. Basically our teacher for that class, I think it was like Cisco. Um, um, cause I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was in like networking classes and graphical designers, just like anything with computers. I just want to do something with a computer, please dear God. Cause I like computers. Um, and so one of the things I did though, was write news articles about tech and things like that in there because the, our teacher basically was trying to get us in the habit of reading tech news. So we'd go to like, I think it's like dig.com or something like that. And we would just go through and find a new story to basically show him that we read it, understood it and wrote a little blurb about it essentially. And I really liked that. Um, and so what I did, um, after that is I opened up my own, uh, WordPress blog um, called, uh, a Coolian's box. Uh, I think it was like a box because it was like, you know, a soap box kind of thing. I, I assume a lot of people probably do that. Um, although the actual imagery on the website, I don't know when I decided on the imagery, but the imagery for the website was me inside of a box with a bunch of controllers coming out and like a stacks of games around. So I guess maybe the, the intention was, Hey guys, I got a bunch of games just hanging around. Let's talk about them kind of thing. Um, although I did talk mostly about newer games at the time and things like that. So, so Cooling's Box is where I really kind of first started writing stuff on the internet. And, um, I forget how it worked out, but I ended up working for a website called Default Prime, if I recall correctly. And, um, basically it was, you know, one of those typical, like, you know, uh, websites where they're paying you dirt cheap, basically, or paying you nothing, honestly, most of the time being paid nothing. And um, they're just like, hey, you get the experience and exposure to basically write on our website for a little bit kind of thing. And so it's like, hey, here's some news stories. Hey, if you want to do a review every once in a while, here you go. Um, I was doing like retro reviews on there as well. Um, we had some disagreements with some of the wording and stuff. I personally was very kind of conservative in terms of my writing, where they very much wanted kind of more edgy writing in some ways. Um, I know a few times like the editor would like edit in curse words to my <laughs> um, my uh, my thing. So I, I initially kind of started going between um, a cool inbox and um, a default prime. Um, I forget how long I was with Default Prime, but it, it was pretty clear it wasn't really going to go anywhere. Um, and so as time went on, I think they eventually paid me a little bit of money, but it was very, very little. It was like less than, it was like 20 bucks maybe at some point. 
Um, which, you know, being out of high school, not having a job or whatever, I was like, oh, cool, 20 bucks, I'll buy video game. I think I, was, I think I spent it on, I think specifically they gave me the money for um, Tales of Monkey Island on the Wii and, and me buying those episodes so I could do reviews of those for them. Um, so I still was, you know, getting paid to do something for them, essentially. Um, but anyway, so it didn't, it didn't really go anywhere. And then at the time, um, I was getting more involved in um, the Speed Gamers. And the Speed Gamers, I um, was, if you don't know what they are, they're basically like the, 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 the previous version of Awesome Games Done Quick. So basically live streaming, speed running games for charity events. Now, it, it should be noted that these were people who were more or less just friends locally in Texas kind of thing. And so when somebody was speed running a game, it was like them learning it. Or, 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 you know, barely, not really implementing speedrun tech. And, you know, speedrunning was kind of in a weird state back then anyways. But so, so the more accurate description is probably marathon gamers. Because the big thing was, is that for either an entire weekend or for an entire week, they would um, stream these video games. And so they do the Zelda series, they do the Mega Man series, they do the Pokemon games. We're going to catch every Pokemon over the weekend. Things like that. And um, I forget what brought me to do it, but basically I went onto their forums and I did a um, E3 uh, live blog because at the time, um, you know, it wasn't uncommon that somebody might not have access to, you know, the stream for E3 or, you know, more realistically where the live blog kind of came from was people were in an actual, you know, uh, 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 conference area or whatever for the press 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 conference and they would be sending those notes back live um, because the stream wasn't being streamed yet at that time because that was before like anyone was really doing internet streams for those things. So it was kind of like a leftover thing from that. But the intention was that I wanted to live blog for people who just could not watch the live stream at the time, but they wanted to get the updates on it. So, so I did that. And um, at the time, uh, Britt, who ran the Speed Gamers, took notice of it. And he was wanting to expand... Um, the Speed Gamers website to encompass like game news and things like that. Um, and so I ended up joining on for that. I think there's a few other people I joined on with, but I was the only one who really stayed on <laughs> for most of the time. Um, and eventually I ended up becoming like the editor for it as well. Um, it was one of those things where like, I really didn't have a lot of direction beyond just what I was seeing being done out there. So I went out of my way personally to basically work on it. And, and so I was very much fo following the Kotaku and Destructoid format of take a press release, rewrite it. And, and some of that still exists today, honestly, um, with, with video game news and things like that. I, I'm not so involved in that space anymore, um, but it is something that exists and, and that people still do. Um, anyway, so I did that for quite a while. I think it was like 2009 to 2012. So it was like, you know, three years or something like that. Um, the Speed Gamers did try to go into kind of a, um, an organization or business or something like that. We have something called some, like TSG TV and things like that. Um, and it just never really took off in a way. Um, and so, and I think the, the problem my side is I just never really adapted to our audience. Um, that was a big thing. And so eventually we did get writers under me that we also did not pay. <laughs> but, but, you know, I really was, was pretty not great at like providing direction for them. 
Um, so it kind of fizzled out in a lot of ways. And, and, and the reality was, is that these other websites existed. So going to the speed gamers for that information just didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, there's a lot of different ways that we could have handled that. That would have been much more valuable and probably a lot more productive. But what I got from there, you know, outside of just writing, um, uh, news stories, was, uh, well, really, because of writing news stories, I got in the habit of writing every day. I got in the habit of working with blog software, like, regularly. I got in the habit of, like, working with people. I was not a good editor, and I was not a good boss, I will say. Um, at least that's my my impression of myself. Um, but but uh, I tried, you know. I was a young kid who didn't know what I was doing kind of thing, right? Um, so, you know, I think I, I earned, I gained a lot from that experience, even if it didn't like ultimately turn into something. Um, and I actually wrote for them a little longer than I think any other outlet, because during the time I was at the Speed Gamers, I actually took on work for, um, VG Charts. They were launching their new, uh, portal, I think called Gamer Feed specifically. And they were looking for features writers, and I and I showed them some of my writing for that, and they were um, very excited to to get me on board with that. Um, so I ended up joining uh, them to do feature writings, and I will t- let you know the requirements for feature writings at VG Charts for how much they were paying were was very very crazy. They wanted five feature articles a day, which is like you know if you think about it, it's like editorials and things like that, basically. Um, which is not something that really can be done at a quality level every five days. Um, so I ended up not delivering that often. I ended up delivering maybe two to three a week, which is still crazy. And if you go look at the, the that work, the quality was just not there. You know, I would spend a night working on it basically and then submit it off kind of thing. And so it became a lot of very questionable articles built on questionable information, things like that. Um, it is a very questionable time of, of content for me specifically, uh, but it's just in the situation you're in, you know, very intense, um, um, you know, uh, deadlines. Um, and again, not for a lot of pay, but I did get a lot of uh, views on there at the time. Um, so I, I made some articles about uh, E3. I forget exactly what it was. I think I think there were like more negative articles, like five disappointing things about E3 or like five uh, games from companies, like five bad games from companies that you love, things like that. So, so it was more of like negative kind of focused content. Um, but you know, I was getting quite a few views at the time. Um, and that was probably honestly, probably some of the most successful stuff I wrote, despite the quality of the content being pretty bad. So, um, yeah, so VG charts kind of overlapped with the speed gamers there, but eventually the speed gamers was like kind of the last, last bastion for me when I was in uh, high school or in high school college. Um, and then eventually I just kind of fell off that. Um, I submitted some articles to VentureBeat at the time. They took some of those. Unfortunately, they were submitted to the community section. And so while they got primetime placement on VentureBeat's, uh, I think it called GameBeat's website at the time, um, when when they changed stuff around in their back end, they got re, recategorized as community posts, which didn't look particularly great when I was like trying to you know, sell that, like VentureBeat published some of my stuff because they did publish it, um, at the time. So unfortunately that kind of happened. Um, so that was kind of the last hurrah there of me trying to do anything there. Um, and then there was kind of a few years of silence there. And then that's kind of when I went back to Aquilian's box for a while. Um, and then pretty quickly realized what I wanted to do kind of outgrew what the WordPress could do at that point. And that's when one controller port happened. And here I am. 
pretty close to like five years later. I think that was I think that was 2018. So boy, it's it's coming along. Uh, <laughs> I would say the website One Controller Port is very much just for me at this point. I could be wrong. Let me know if you go and hang out on OneControllerPort.com. It's a great website, <laughs> but uh, I imagine most people are just coming to the podcast feed, the YouTube feeds. You know, I'm not really posting a lot of content on One Controller Port that's exclusive there at this point. Unfortunately, it's more of just a general hub. Um, for my content. And, and the nice thing about it is I can kind of, um, I can control it, which is nice. Um, that, that is the, the nice thing. Cause I like, that is my space. You know, obviously there's different things of like, Oh, if you post something and don't go daddy, you want to host you anymore or something like that. There's that aspect of it. But you know, I don't have to worry about people coming and meddling with it. I am the one who controls one controller port for the most part. So that's what the nice thing about it is. And, 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 you know, kind of no matter where I go, I can use one control port as like an initial hub. Obviously to some extent I could use a Coolian's box for that on WordPress. Um, but the problem with that is that you're just kind of stuck in like a standard blog format. So I, I wanted to make a website that felt more, um, more easy to surface certain types of content and things like that. So I don't really put push people to the website anymore. I don't think it makes a lot of sense at this point, but, um, it makes me happy. It's not that expensive to maintain. Um, so, you know, life I live. Thank you for that question. Went on quite a bit longer than I expected it to, to be honest, but uh, uh, hopefully that was interesting. I don't know how well known people, how well people know my history with that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, worked with a handful of websites, unfortunately never really did anything super professionally, you know, maybe at most got like 300 bucks when I was at VG charts. And that was kind of the big thing I actually, so, so speaking of the venture beat stuff, um, I actually got a notification from my Google AdSense recently of them being like, Hey, we changed our policy. You need to do something with this or we're going to kick you out of Google AdSense. And I logged in and I had like 20 bucks that's just like floating in there. And unfortunately, you can't take out any of the money um, without getting up to at least 100. Um, so what I did do um, was I went ahead and embedded the uh, the ad at the top of the uh, One Control Port website. So I think there should be an ad there now if you go and look. Um, uh, I wasn't doing anything with it really anyways. And again, I think I'm the only one there whoever goes to onecontrollerport.com. But I was like, well, I can put this here and, you know, that would be a place that I could technically keep the AdSense account in case sometime in the future I don't want to use it. I don't know. Maybe eventually I'll finally scrape the pennies away and get to that $100 so I can get my sweet payout. Get my sweet payout for my Animal Crossing New Leaf article that I did that got some money, money moolah when it was at venture beat. So, and by money, money, moolah, I mean, $20. Pretty sure that's the only article I really earned any money over there. So, so yeah. Anyways. So yeah, feel free to go to the Patreon. If you want to ask a Patreon question, there'll be a Patreon question post on Monday. So if you want to ask that, just go leave a comment on that post. It goes up basically every Monday afternoon on the Patreon. So I appreciate you again, everyone. Happy to hear your questions. Ask those questions if you want. I forgot to mention earlier, but Jillian was the one who submitted that question. So thank you, Jillian. It's news time. Welcome. It's the news section. Hey, a video game got canceled that I had no idea existed, I think. I don't recall it existing, at least. Metal Max Wild West. If you don't know, Metal Max is a very long-running series. I think back to the Famicom era. Very kind of goofy series, dogs that have turrets on their back and things like that. There's actually a spin-off game that came out recently 
where um, you like are like an isometric shooter and you're a dog running around. Um, but these games are kind of weird games. Metal Saga got localized on the PS2 and it's kind of goofy looking game. You know, you go and roll these tanks up to fight off like giant muscle macho men and things like that. Goofy game. I picked up Metal Saga on the PS2, but have not played it. I got it like 20 bucks sealed and I think it's actually now not not particularly cheap, but but at the time it was was uh, less expensive, that's for sure. Anyway, so they released Metal Max Xeno a while ago um, on the PS4 and they actually did a re-release called Metal Max Xeno. Metal Max Xeno Reborn, which reworked the graphics and things like that. But uh, last year they announced a new game, Metal Max Wild West. They showed off two screenshots for this game during a stream. Um, and unfortunately, it sounds like that the game, which was intended to come out this year, apparently, um, is is being canceled. So I didn't know it existed, um, but I think it makes an interesting question because it was presented as this is the next step, next step rather, in the Metal Max uh, franchise. So I'm really curious if that means that this is the end of the Metal Max franchise or if there's a particular problem with this particular game. All they really said in their post about it was development wasn't going as smoothly as we wanted, so we canceled it. But I'm very curious if um, that uh, is something that that we'll see again in some other form at some point. So there are tons of Metal Max games, though. So personally, I'm not really hurt by it. Metal Max Xeno I never picked up, but more importantly, I have Metal Saga on PS2 that I never played. So some point I will play me some metal saga and uh and then also acquire had like a press conference on Sunday kind of their e3 press conference thing and there was a few different games showed in there like a kind of a dungeon crawling RPG for the name on it um and 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 they showed off like some Akiva strip DLC I think like that but uh the one game that caught my eye in there was adventure Academy Aca- adventure academia if i can say words um and this is a part of the class of hero series and it's a strategy rpg or maybe you know, they label it as a strategy rpg but from what i can tell during the gameplay itself it's actually a real-time strategy game so you basically have these little characters that bounce around on the board and you can kind of direct them and they kind of go around and i think they largely act on their own attacking enemies and things like that but you kind of generally guide them um i think it's like anywhere between like six to eight characters it has a very cute style have you ever seen like those little like rubber um uh keychain kind of anime uh things you can buy like they're fairly cheap little anime things just kind of rubber keychain things the, the characters kind of look like that when they bounce around and the bosses do too so it just had a really cute aesthetic to it and i and i thought it looked kind of neat i i doubt i'll end up playing it unfortunately it's one of those games that just like you know i look at it and visually i'm like yes this is visually appealing um but from a gameplay perspective i question if i'd really be into it now let me say one thing though you know, like I said last week, I'm trying to talk about things that would get me to buy games so I don't end it on, hey, I'm just not going to play this game ever. So one thing that looks really cool about this game that I think would get me interested is um, the real-time adventure aspects or real-time uh, real strategy aspects of it, um, depending on the depth of the gameplay of that. Um, because I'm a big fan of Full Spectrum Warrior and Full Spectrum Warrior is a game where you control a squad in a very like RTS kind of way. And I, and I think a big reason why Full Spectrum Warrior is the way it is, is because they're trying to make like an RTS essentially on a console. And the best way for them to do that was essentially scale it down, bring the camera down behind the back squad game, but you control the squad, give them commands and things like that. And so you're controlling just a few units that are kind of bound together, although you can break them up. So there's kind of like a little echo and air of that when I saw this game that kind of made me feel like, oh, this feels little butterflies in my stomach. So um, I think the big thing for me was like, 
I personally still need to play Full Spectrum Warrior 10 Hammers, which is the sequel. And there's also a SOCOM game on the PSP that actually follows kind of the Full Spectrum Warrior design. So I think if I didn't personally have more interest in those particular games right now, um, I would be interested in this a bit more. Um, so so it, it does look cool. Um, I think it's one of those games that I just have to kind of get around to be able to, to sit down and play. But I do think there's an appeal to small-scale RTS that I that I really like. Um, but I think the difference between something like this and like a full-spectrum warrior is that full-spectrum warrior is kind of a full 3D game where you're kind of navigating around an entire world. This is more of like just a isometric board kind of thing. And I think I think the dy- dynamic mechanics of that can be probably a bit more limiting personally. So we'll see though. Anyway, so those were kind of the individual announcements. I guess that acquire thing was its own little like, um, you know, press conference thing that happened. But, um, but those are the two like just stories on their own that I want to talk about. Now, as I mentioned, Xbox Showcase uh, is happening tomorrow, I believe, when I'm recording this. So yesterday for you guys. So I can't really comment on that stuff yet. Gonna take a strong guess, and there's not gonna be a lot that I have a lot of feelings on. As much as I really like appreciate Microsoft's stance in the gaming space, um, first party Microsoft content, Bethesda content, Activision content, none of it really stands out to me that much. I, I more of like to observe it from a where what is the state of the game industry? What is the state of Microsoft? That's how I like looking at those games typically. I don't really plan to sit down and play them. That doesn't mean that I can't have my mind changed though. Look at Street Fighter 6. I would have never thought I'd be want to be excited for a Street Fighter 6, but there we go. We got something there. So um, but anyway, so so the Xbox showcases, uh, we'll we'll see. We'll talk about it next week. Um, but there was the Summer Game Fest event, which is the Jeff Keeley's essentially E3 replacement. So they had a little stage show, and and Jeff Keeley was very kind of upfront about like, hey, don't really expect all that much. And it was a good thing to say, I think, um, because they definitely had some interesting and good looking games, but I don't think they had anything that really like blew anyone away. There's no like big surprise or like, oh my God, Skate 4 kind of thing. You don't really have those kind of moments in this showcase. A lot of it, surprisingly, was kind of like space horror shooters and very Dead Space style. Um, I know there's like an actual Dead Space remake happening that wasn't there, but there's that. Um, there's the one that's like being made by I think the at least some of the key staff who worked on Dead Space that so they're making their own thing. And then there's like another thing that I didn't recognize either. I'm like all these games just look like Dead Space. <laughs> so, so I guess, you know, if you're a big Dead Space fan, welcome. This is the year for you or, or the next year, I guess, is probably the year for you. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting to see and people were kind of confused, I think, to some degree. So, um, but, um, personally, I think I'd be interested in checking out Dead Space 3. I don't really have any interest in Dead Space 2, but, um, Dead Space 3 as a co-op game sounds like it could be interesting. Um, so someday I might check out Dead Space 3. I remember the DLC being kind of interesting from what I remember as well. I don't remember exactly what it was. I remember liking the suit design of the, the, the character in there though. It's like its own standalone story, I think, to some degree. So, um, so that kind of stuff was shown off. There's some other trailers from other random things that I was just like, eh, Aliens game. It was mostly like a CG trailer, stuff like that. CG trailers, you know, pretty difficult for me to really get excited for your video game. Um, there was Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 gameplay. And while it looks like a Call of Duty game, you know, for better or for worse, um, it is a great looking video game. Technically, I think it was probably the game that really jumped out at me the most visually at that showcase. So I was um, really impressed by what I saw. Um, I also was very happy that it was a gameplay demo, very old school style gameplay demo for better or for worse again. Um, but um, I'm I'm always happy to see gameplay over just like some cinematic trailer kind of thing. So um, very happy to see that. But, you know, 
will I play it? I don't know. I don't think this year is when that's coming out. I think it's next year. I believe they're skipping this year. I might be getting my years mixed up, but I believe next year is Modern Warfare 2 years. So it was kind of funny because it was just like, oh, like they're like, we changed Call of Duty with Modern Warfare. I'm like, I didn't really hear anyone saying that Call of Duty changed with Modern Warfare. And so, so yeah, I don't know. Like, like the most recent Modern Warfare, not, not the previous one. Old Modern Warfare, yes, that changed Call of Duty. The newest Modern Warfare, eh. <laughs> so anyways. Uh, one game I was kind of excited to see was One Piece Odyssey. Um, I believe that's the full name. This is the One Piece JRPG. And um, while I am not a One Piece fan, although I do have, I think, Unlimited Cruise or Unlimited Adventure on the Wii. Um, that when, Anytime you have a Bandai Namco anime game that's not like a arena fighter um you are you automatically have my attention i think anime games are really fascinating things and i like to see how um they take aspects of the series and apply those to gameplay mechanics and things like that um so this is like more of a traditional standard jrpg as far as i can tell it looks very like turn-based combat characters just standing there with like a menu interface showing up so depending on how simple or complicated that is um i think i could be somewhat excited for it but they just didn't really show all that much they did show off the user interface and some screenshots, actually, but not enough for me to really get excited, unfortunately, for that. Um, but still, I think I'm very curious about what that game's going to be. So we'll see. Like I said, I have another One Piece game I still got to check out at some point. So if I actually check this one out, it's really going to be very dependent on what does that combat system look like. And I've got plenty of JRPGs sitting around, too. So it will probably have to really capture my attention to get to get me in. But um, I, I'm curious about it. So I'll be curious to see what it what it looks like. I don't think there's been any gameplay yet, as far as I can tell, beyond just the in-engine stuff and like characters standing around and walking around the overworld and things like that. There's a shooter called Metal Hellsinger, which looks very like uh, Doom-like. Even the guy who is like presenting the game looks like basically a blonde John Romero. Uh, my friend actually played this and said it was great, and I, I think it looks great too. Very well-cut trailer, lots of gameplay in there. Looks like a very fast-paced shooter with interesting weapons and things like that. So um, there's actually a demo on Steam as well, so you can play that demo and, and check that out. I'm kind of interested. I might check the demo out, honestly. Um, I feel like I've been itching for like a PC first-person shooter for a while. I keep like eyeing up Apex, like maybe I'll check Apex out again, but I know I don't want to play Apex. So like, I'm just like, okay, but maybe at some point I'll play some kind of shooter here and that will itch, scratch that itch and I don't want to worry about Metal Hellsinger. Um, and then the last thing in there was um, that caught my eye was Saints Row. Uh, I believe it's called Saints Row Boss Factory. Maybe that's just like the downloadable thing they put out, like the character creator. Um, there is a new Saints Row game coming out, I believe, though. Um, from, I believe they announced that previously. And, and, and I have nothing to say about this particular game or like its tone or anything like that. I think what, what interests me most about Saints Row is Grand Theft Auto is like in a really interesting spot right now where it is just kind of locked to this online mode that they built out with Grand Theft Auto V. I actually had a little bit of a conversation with a friend about this recently, talking about what what do you need to bring Grand Theft Auto VI into the world? Um, and and uh, the online is definitely a part of that. But um, another conversation I had, separate conversation I had, was talking about how game companies never want to transition player bases between two different live games they want one live game to evolve into the other game and even that's dangerous because if you tweak too much you're gonna lose your audience so i'll be really curious to see how they handle that on you know if they bring grand theft auto 5 online into grand theft auto 6 if that ever happened because i think the real benefit of grand theft auto 6 today would be single player content but 
Does that really make money and make sense for Rockstar and what they're doing? I don't know if that's the case. I think the answer has been no, although I think they have said Grand Theft Auto 6 is in development, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen, right? And Grand Theft Auto 6 may simply be like a massive expansion onto Grand Theft Auto 5 or something like that, right? As a possibility or a revamp or relaunch. Maybe like a Fancy Star Online 2 New Genesis situation, right? So so um, what's interesting to me about Saints Row is that Saints Row obviously is not connected to that aspect, does not have the multiplayer focus. And and when Saints Row is last relevant, single player Grand Theft Auto was kind of the, the position it was in, but it was competing against Grand Theft Auto. Um, so it's, it's interesting to think about this idea that like Saints Row kind of has its own domain that it can work with when it comes to single player Grand Theft Auto games and the people who might enjoy that. Now, how much of that audience, you know, that plays you know, a single player Grand Theft Auto overlaps with multiplayer Grand Theft Auto. I don't know. Do you have people who are just waiting for that new single player Grand Theft Auto and that's it? I don't know if that's the case. But it's it's kind of interesting. It's kind of curious. Personally, I played Saints Row 3, really enjoyed it. So I think there's also a lot of room for that series to be good. Um, I know the later games definitely got less um, impressive and kind of railed on a little bit. I had a friend who talked to me about it recently as well. All these friends, just bring up all these friends I'm talking to about video games. Um, I'm so popular. <laughs> no. um, so uh, I was talking to another friend about um, his experience with uh, Saints Row 4, and he actually really enjoyed Saints Row 4. So so there could be like a disconnect in like how the media portrayed Saints Row, but I know like, uh, I think it was called something Mayhem or something like that. I know that game bombed pretty hard. So I think there's definitely room for like a Saints Row to succeed um, and to be a good game. Whether I play, it's a whole other thing. I'm not a huge Grand Theft Auto fan. I think Saints Row 3 was really fun as a co-op experience that I had it with and the goofiness of it, but I only really need that once. So personally, no real interest in a Saints Row game. Um, what can they do to change that for me? That's a really hard question because honestly, I just kind of don't like Grand Theft Auto games generally. So um taking like i i think personally i'd want it to still be a grand theft auto game just from like a positioning perspective and a, and a content library perspective because uh, i think anything i would personally need out of saints row would basically just not be saints row at that point so yeah uh, i think that's the kind of situation but i think i'm excited for a new saints row and excited for what a new saints row can be even if it's not something that i'll personally play for that so Anyways, that was really all that I had to say about the Summer Games Fest. Again, it was kind of like a eh show. I think most people felt that way. But, you know, again, they kind of messaged that ahead of time a bit. So, so yeah. Um, the, there's the Xbox thing on Sunday. We'll see how that goes. Or you will have seen how it goes at this point, And we'll maybe talk about it next week. I um, mean, kind of a side note to all of this. Uh, the ESA said that E3 would back, be back in 2023. Um, and, and, and it sounds like they more or less committed to a physical and digital event. Now, obviously, things can change. But it sounds like they're just going in on it. And like par- part of me wonders if like the reason why they didn't do E3 this year was just like, I feel like everybody had like cold feet a little bit, or at least they had cold feet. And maybe they waited a little too long. And with the, 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 the state of the industry right now, a lot of games getting delayed and not a lot of being shown, you know, for a variety of reasons. You know, there's also, you know, the hardware shortages still. So people are, are you know, still kind of making games that ride the line between PS4 and PS5. You know, so many factors that come into that. Um, but uh, I think uh, I, I think it just probably when when they sat down and like they didn't commit to it, it probably just made it really hard to build a show while Jeff Keighley was building a show. So Jeff, you know, obviously did a great job 
you know, taking that time and building out that show with, with at least what, what he could have. Because I think if you split these up between two different shows, it would not have been as, uh, as, as good or impressive. So can E3 come back next year and do something, you know, important or interesting? That's a whole other thing. Um, you know, uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but, but it's interesting that they've committed to it at the very least. So. And a little bit here, this is not really a part of Summer Game Fest, although uh, Sonic Frontiers is being shown at Summer Game Fest. There are like um, demo units there at the actual physical event that people can play. Um, and, 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 and kind of the one thing that, that, that came out of that, um, and I think came out of like IGN's interviews about the game as well, is that the open world aspect of the game is only one part of the game. They're also going to have more traditional closed area design in the other parts of the game. Um to me, that is probably a smart approach, and I think they probably should have shown that off along with the open world design, if, in my opinion. Um, but depending on how those closed areas are built, I think I might be kind of uncertain about how um, excited I would be for a game built around closed area designs and then using open world just as like a traversal method between the the land and things like that. So a little a little uncertain how I feel about the closed area designs, but I think it's probably for for what the game is right now, it, it will probably be an improvement to the game. But when it comes to, you know, differentiating the game from other titles in the series, I, I question that a little bit. Um, but one thing that they also mentioned as well was basically, you know, they, they would like to continue the Sonic Adventure franchise. Sonic Team would like to. And, you know, it's interesting to think about that. Um, because, you know, in some ways, uh, Sonic Adventure 2006, I think, or Sonic 2006, I think, was kind of somewhat intended to be a successor to that Sonic Adventure game. I'm sure there's, like, Sonic fans, feel free to let me know, like, how that's wrong. Because I don't know that for sure off the top of my head. But I believe that was kind of the case of, like, these games. Sonic 06 was kind of built in a more adventure style with, like, a hub and things like that. Um, I think maybe the difference would, between, like, a Sonic Adventure style and, like, a Sonic 06 style is maybe... Sonic Adventure is a little more open-ended in its world design, but I feel like Sonic Adventure and Sonic 2, or Sonic Adventure 2, were already, like, different in that regard, where Sonic Adventure had more open design and Sonic Adventure 2 was a lot more straightforward. So I guess the question would be, you know, what are you particularly, what does, what does Sonic, or what does Sega mean by a Sonic Adventure game? And what does that world design look like? And what does the level design look like? Um, personally, you know, while, while I think I would personally take a new Sonic Adventure style game over, um, a, a more traditional like Sonic Colors or Sonic Generation style game, um, I will say that like, I don't really have a ton of interest in going back to that style at this point. I mean, I think Sonic Adventure 1 worked because 3D game design is new. What are we doing? Every 3D game has to be building a world kind of thing, right? So Sonic Adventure had to be more than just Sonic Adventure. It had to be a fishing game. It had to be a world. It had to have a story. Like, like the Sonic Adventure kind of falls into that big 3D trap of that time, for better or for worse, in a way that it kind of has to be everything, but doesn't specialize in one thing for the most part. Um, and, and, you know, how successful it is, is kind of varied. And I think that's part of why Sonic Adventure 2, they kind of narrow those categories down, focused on the things that really matter, um, with Sonic Adventure 2. So, yeah. And Sonic Adventure 2, I feel like is, is yeah, I don't know. I guess it really depends, but I, I guess I would be interested in seeing more open area design, but again, I, I, I don't really know what that would look like to excite me. I don't want a Sonic Adventure, you know, one clone or Sonic Adventure 2 clone. So curious to see what happens with that. Anyways, that's it for this week. Thanks for coming. OneControlPro.com is the website. Um, in terms of content, like I said, I had the Kooten and Squash video that came out last week. 
it really stumbled out the gate. So if you have not watched it and you plan to watch it, I would appreciate if you do. Share it if you can. It, it Again, it's been up for like four or five days now, I think. And it's got like 30 to 40 something views, which is worse than the podcast sometimes. So, so yeah, I'm not quite sure why it did so poor. Um, the first day, I don't think it even broke 10 views, which is kind of crazy. I need to go back and look on that if that's the case. But anyways, not sure what went so wrong with that. Maybe I did something wrong that uh, YouTube did not like, so they hit it or something. Or maybe I just didn't do a good thumbnail and did a good, good, good clickable things. So who can say? Um, you know, if, if part of me is like maybe it's the video itself, but you know, I didn't get any dislikes on it, and and the people that did watch it seemed to like it. There's a lot of likes on it from the people who did watch it. So I'm not quite sure what went so bad. Um, anyways, so that came out. Um, like I said, if you're a Patreon member this week, uh, there is the uh, 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 Dojin uh, book stuff that we looked at. If you want to check that out. And then the week after that, I have a PCFX podcast coming out. Um, actually, it's going to be split up into two parts. I think I talked about it a little bit before. But basically, I talked with uh, Speedy Noel of the Emily Dory channel. And uh, Filler, who we've talked with before, who's done the Welcome to Pia Carrot translation, but works on a lot of fan translations in general. Um, we did a podcast together, and uh, the first part of that will be coming out um, next week. So if you want to check that out, that will be coming out then. Please give that a listen. And uh, yeah, hope, hope you guys are looking forward to it. And I have some more PCFX stuff coming up pretty shortly after that as well. So uh, we'll see if we can get this Buddy Mission Bond stuff going this too. So anyways, again, thank you so much for coming. OneControlBoard.com is the website. And I hope you have a great week. Bye.